Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Now, I'm going to tell you something that happened to me about half an hour ago, because it really happened, and it's the kind of thing that people who are introducing people make up, but it really, really, really did happen. And so I'm going to uh, share it with you, which is a gentleman came up to me over there, I was standing over there, and, uh, and I think he might have been even older than me, which is always nice for me. Um, and he said, I don't really understand, he said... Um, Lily Cole, you've got Lily Cole on, haven't you, uh, in a few minutes? And I said, yes, that's right. Uh, and he said, but I don't really understand because um, she's a model and it says on my program that it's going to be around technology and innovation uh, and design. And so haven't you made... This is literally what he said to me. I mean, fair enough, he was asking the question. So uh, he didn't really know who Lily Cole is. So I will just tell you who she is and then she's going to come up and join us on stage because Lily Cole is, of course, a model and an actor, but she's also... And critically, an entrepreneur, a technologist, an innovator. She's founder of technology company Impossible, which focuses on innovation and design as tools for addressing social and environmental problems. She's a vocal advocate for socio-political and environmental causes, employing technology, writing, filmmaking, and public speaking as means to build awareness and to encourage dialogue. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lily Cole. So, hello. Hi, Lily. So, there are some people who still don't know all the stuff that you do. So, I'm going to ask some pretty basic questions to get started. Tell us first of all about, about your company, about Impossible, what it does, what it's for. Um, it's a surprise to me as well that technology is ever associated with my name because it wasn't in the plan. Um, but uh, when I was in university, I had an idea for what would now probably be better known as the sharing economy. So how can technology connect communities and help people? It was, I was having the conversation just after the t uh, 2008 economic crash. Um, how can we use technology to help people uh, trade with one another, share skills with one another, share objects, with meaning that if there's another economic crash or people are short of cash or they actually just want to get to know their neighbors, um, there's an alternative way online to, to find people. Um, and this is 2010 that, that, that I that idea kind of gave birth to what then became impossible. Um, we developed that platform, we developed a few other platforms, and um, over time it kind of evolved into a slightly different entity, which is uh, still a technology company that builds uh, products and services, sometimes our own ideas, sometimes for other companies. Um, and by and large, we try and think from what we call like a planet-centric way uh, from the beginning. So what are the impact of the, of the things we're making and using? So I was really interested when we, we talked a, a few days ago, because we do a lot of work on design at the RSA, about this shift from the notion of user-centric design. So for many years, the kind of cutting-edge idea in design was that you started, and it's part of design more generally, that you focus on the user and what the user wants. So from user-centric design to planet-centric design. So to uh, unpa unpackage that, that shift a bit more for me. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I came at it probably first actually through fashion as a model, um, working with different companies and starting to try and understand the impact that those companies were having in their supply chains. I, I worked with a, con a company that was in like a lot of controversy when I was about 17. And when I started looking into like what they were doing and I went out to Botswana to understand their supply chain better, I started to take more responsibility myself for the, not only the things I was buying and consuming, but also the companies I was gonna advertise for and work for. Um, and you know now I'm now you know 15 years later um, me and my partner have this company he runs it um, 
I'm more advisor at this stage. And um, we've tried to kind of capture our thinking with this phrase, planet-centric design. Because for a very long time in kind of design thinking, everything's been user-centric. Um, so you build a product and you think about the users and how can we, how can we make them happy? <laughs> what do they want? Um, which feeds into the kind of conveniences killer mandate in a way. Um, and I would say it's not, like user-centric is not altruistic, right? It's not like, how can we think of the user and like what they really need and make them happy? It's like, no, how can we like serve their base instincts that will sell more <laughs> and, um, and generate a, you know, a better business? And I would say at this moment in time, where we are aware of our environmental crisis and um, that that concept is kind of actually fundamentally undermining like genuinely what users need and genuinely what we people, humanity need in the longer term. Um, and we need to start thinking at the beginning of the design process of other, of other factors beyond base instinct, which are kind of you know, social responsibility, but also environmental impact. Um, instead of it being an add-on at the end of like, how can we fix this thing? Thinking about it just from the very, very early stages. Um, it's an open source design thesis that um, we worked with a group called Make Sense on. And it's not perfect. It's just trying to put out this idea and hoping that through a collaborative process, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll create a conversation around um, how design could be done in a more holistic way. So um, one of the little bits of controversy we've had on this stage today has been uh, a few times people have talked about uh, technology in uh, terms of kind of climate change mitigation. So in the, the session before last, someone said they'd heard David King, uh, the former chief scientific officer for the government, saying, look, we need to think about uh, spraying aerosols into the atmosphere in order to reduce temperature rise. Uh, and then Ian, who was in the previous session, said, no, that's a disaster. We don't know what its consequences will be. And there's also this kind of, there's a, there's a danger, isn't there, that when we talk about technology, people will look for a silver bullet out of, of where we are. Now, you think technology has to be part of the solution, but you're aware of that silver bullet danger? I don't think it has to be part of the solution. Um, I've just finished writing, a, well, I'm in the process of finishing writing a book about different solutions to, to our environmental problem. And a, you know, a quarter of the book, one, one section of it, I look at technology and I try and look at it from both the good and the bad. Um, and in my mind, technology is like a hammer. You know, it's like you can do a lot of great things with a hammer and you can also do a lot of terrible things with a hammer. Um, it's fundamentally neutral, but it's powerful. And I think the more important questions around us being aware of how we're using and designing technology. Um, and I think right now, actually, like even people in the technology world are kind of questioning this tech utopian thing, thinking that's been going on for, you know, for a while of like, oh, actually, there are all these problems emerging from... Um, from digital platforms and from and from also the huge ecological footprint that technology requires in its infrastructure. Um, at the same time, there's you know quantum computing that suggests that we might have huge kind of like groundbreaking ways in um, understanding climate change solutions. Uh, there's obviously green kind of clean energy technology that's interesting and exciting. And then also there's geoengineering that you're referring to, and also carbon capture. Um, so I see it kind of both sides, and I try and explore both sides, and I think it has the capacity to help us. But I don't. I think the the, the challenges we need to make are more um, philosophical uh, and more fundamentally, and then technology will be guided by those philosophical changes. And then what about um, innovation? In the sense that I had the, I had this moment uh, which I, I shared with you, and we, we spoke a few days ago, which was I, I did an interview. Uh, with Mike Berners-Lee, the brother of Tim Berners-Lee, wrote this book called There Is No Planet B, uh, around all the issues around... It's a very good book, I recommend it. 
And um, on my way to interview him, I was talking about a project at the RSA, which is around the circular economy, circular, uh, the circular economy in the fashion industry, and feeling kind of quite positive about the changes we could make. And But the podcast I was doing was near Oxford Circus. I got off the tube, and the shops around Oxford Circus, they couldn't, they may as well have just been throwing the clothes free into the street. I mean, it was just piled high, sold cheap. Even the, fer the very mood of the shop was just buy handfuls of stuff, you know. Is there a danger that when we think about innovation and the kind of cutting edge of things that we don't think enough about the fundamental system? Because the fundamental system of fashion, for example, is that on current trends, we're going to be doubling and trebling the number of garments that people buy over, uh, over the next 20 or 30 years. And a little bit of circularity ain't going to change that, is it? Yeah, I mean, I can't pretend I have the answer to that question. It's one I have battled endlessly with, which is, as I understand it, can you change the system from inside the system or can you only ever change the system from outside of the system? Personally, I have spent most of my energy and time wondering, can you change the system from within? So can you become part of the systems and the technologies? Um, because I like the idea of evolution. And, and actually, if you look historically, most of our systems have evolved in a really positive direction. Um, so I think we have the capacity as a species to like keep evolving and redesigning our systems, economic, political, um, et cetera, into better versions of themselves. That's where I get my optimism. Um, at the same time, I've, you know, I've read a lot of those uh, similar kind of books and thinking that critique, you know, the idea of endless growth obviously being impossible <laughs> and, um, and the kind of fundamental, like yeah, some of the most fundamental premises of capitalism being paradoxical to sustainability. Um, I'm hopeful that you know social businesses as a movement, B Corp, starts to change that. Like starts to question, you know, um, shareholder profit as being the only thing that you know companies are legally bound to to be driven by. Um, policies will start to change that. Carbon taxes. I know that's been spoken about a bit on this stage today. Um, I think that there are ways of evolving the system into a more healthy direction, um, and that's that's where I put my energy. But I couldn't. So uh, at the RSA, the phrase we use to describe our model of change is we say you should think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. So you should try to recognize issues as systemic, but the, the change from one system to another often happens through kind of experimental, agile, adaptive, unexpected kind of ways. You don't, you don't, you don't replace one system with a whole other system that's pre-designed. You have to go on a kind of mazy path, but you have to have a sense that in the end you're trying to shift the system as a whole. Does that accord with your view? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I wrote my university thesis on utopia and the idea that utopia is not, um, is not fixed. You know, and, and any time you try and like design a perfect building system society and fix the utopic, it doesn't work because of entropy. Um, so for me, the utopic is like trying to always improve and get better. Um, and I know you were talking earlier about UBI. I came to the guy standing talk, and I think UBI is a good example of that because quite often universal basic income, when you when it gets proposed people have very strong opinions of why it w would work or wouldn't work. Um, and I think the more important thing is like trying and learning and testing and having a kind of entrepreneurial spirit of, of okay, this bit worked well and this didn't work well and how can we try again in a different way? Um, because that's, that's the only way you really ever design anything well. Great, I've got one more question and then we're gonna open it up uh, so you can ask your questions to Lily. So my final question is another, another issue that has run through the day. Uh, it's come up in different ways all through the day is the balance between optimism and pessimism and we have a new prime minister for whom optimism is his kind of uh, you know he's trying to say that's his trademark so 
you don't blind optimism, but Solitaire, who was on just before you, said we desperately need more optimism in the movement. But, but yet, we also hear a lot of pessimism. And, you know, after all, we're sitting here and we're still not as a planet doing what we need to do. So for you, how, what's your answer to that conundrum about alarmism and panic and crisis on the one hand and optimism and hope and action on the other? Um, I, you know, personally oscillate between those two positions regularly. Um, if I read the news, I feel usually quite pessimistic. Um, if I look at the scientific data, I feel very scared. Um, but then I feel like that mindset is not helpful. And, um, and actually what I think is more likely to get us out of this problem is optimism. And not a kind of like blasé, apathetic, everything's going to be fine, the technologists are going to fix it, or the, you know, the politicians are going to fix it. Like an engaged optimism. Um, but an optimism that believes in our capacity as a species to, to overcome the problems that we have right now, because we've done amazing things. And, and for the, you know, the purpose of writing my book, I found tons of optimistic, like reasons to be optimistic, both historically in terms of like things that we've overcome and done in the past, um, but also at this moment in time that we're living in like one of the most peaceful societies ever. We've we have evolved different systems for like how to manage millions of people in really positive ways. Um, we've obviously invented tons of crazy things, we've, you know, flown to the moon, blah, 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 blah. Um, and also at this moment in time, there are so many people who care, and I think that's really important, that um, especially in the environmental movement, there's been a huge transition in the last year even of concern and voices of, of care. And I think that to me gives me hope that we will be able to steer in a better direction. So I'm just, as you're, as you're speaking, I'm kind of thinking of a transmission belt here, which is on the one you've got, You've got solutions and people developing solutions uh, and with a hunger to be the, the, the solvers. You've got people who do care about these issues and want them resolved. The political system has been acting as a barrier between these two groups, as it were. And what we need now is a shift in the political system so it becomes much better at, at, at enabling the people who can develop solutions, the entrepreneurs, the innovators, the designers, to respond to what the public say, which is start using all of those skills to solve the issues that really matter. I mean, I feel also hopeful that politics is waiting, waking up to the fact there is a public, an increasing public appetite to this issue. Um, I, there were studies in the last, you know, this year that two-thirds of the British public, and I think a similar number in America, are genuinely concerned now about climate change. I think it's becoming viscerally real. You know, the weather is strange. Um, and I think, a lot of, I think that has been the tipping point for, for a lot of people. And I'm hopeful that you know, we live in democracies and that politicians ultimately want our votes. And as that tipping point accelerates, the policies will come into effect. I don't think it'll be easy, but I, 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 I think that will happen. Okay, let's have some questions. Unfortunately, because we're being filmed, we're both rooted to our I'm seats. sorry, I feel very rude. Uh, and so if you've got a question behind me, you'll have to move into my eye line. Right, there's a question here at the front. Wait for a microphone to come to you. Yes, I've seen the sign. Hello. Um, I'm very interested in what you said about... Tell us who you are. Oh, hi, I'm Phoebe. And I also work in fashion, so I um, have a lot of respect for you putting your face to the brands that you respect and what they're doing. And I'm interested in what you were saying about um, having cha making change inside or outside um, a situation and what your guidance would be in terms of when you're in something and you're trying to influence other people. Um, I think we can learn a lot from you um, in all the different areas that everyone here works in different uh, industries. What would be your kind of main piece of advice uh, when you're in something, you're trying to influence other people in your, uh, in your vision and your beliefs? It's a tricky question. I mean, 
kind of want to be working in situations where you're vaguely on the same page as other people because otherwise I think it can be really frustrating which may mean setting up your own project or changing uh, the company you're working with but if that doesn't feel like the right solution I think trying to just speak human to human you know and like share your concerns share your reasoning um, I also try with businesses especially to to sh to cut it both ways to explain that like thinking about the environment planet-centric design for example um, is really important but from a kind of ethical, philosophical perspective, if you have children, if you care about other communities right now, and even about, selfishly, our own kind of um, uh, sustainability on this planet. Um, but also, there's a second argument, which is, like, for me, it makes fundamental good business sense. Not, not thinking environmentally, you are, like, you are doomed moving forward, because we're re it's really clear the trajectory of change and, and how things are moving. Um, so I try, like, to, to also get people on board from that perspective, too, um, that I do think it's, it's good, it's a, I mean, even Apple, who've now, you know, like monolithic company, um, have now, you know, gone on a huge sustainability push in the last year, and they wrote a letter to the EPA where they said climate change is a moral, um, a moral case that makes good business sense. Um, so I think that that kind of helps swing the argument, you know, however, whoever you're talking to. Okay, what what questions, other questions, do we have for Lily? Here is a question. Hi, I'll start by apologizing because I don't know what you do. I know you're a model, but I don't know what sort of things you do. But I'm guessing you do something that's okay. That you do something amazing. That's why you're on this stage. I just wondered, could you just explain what sort of things you do as a model that kind of brings you into that stage? Yes. What, what was the journey what you went on, Lily? What, the, I mean, what was the point at which you decided you were going to use your fame and your? To, uh, to, to talk about these kinds of issues. And, and when you made that decision, was there any pressure on you not to do that? Was it a difficult moment? So I started modeling when I was 14. Um, I'm 31 now, so a while ago. And, uh, and at first, I mean, I was just like a, like, you know, like a regular kid from, from London, and it was amazing. I got to travel the world, it was super exciting. Got to miss school. Um, and then, as I mentioned, when I was 16, I uh, worked with a diamond company that were in lots of controversy. And so I tried to, trying to understand what was going on, um, went out to Botswana and interviewed people there. Um, and I'm quite geeky, and I think I was just kind of fascinated by, you know, this whole other world, I guess, that existed. And I also always felt a very big sense of responsibility, and so I felt very responsible. I didn't want to be working for, yeah, for companies I didn't respect. Um, and at first, I did get some pushback on that. I, you know, I have a lovely agent who I'm still with. You remember saying, "Don't you? Aren't you scared? You're feeding the hand that bites you." What is it? Biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Um, but I just knew in my heart it was the right thing to do. And I also, to be honest, never saw myself modelling long term. It was always kind of a thing for that time. But I had other things I wanted to do. Um, and so I was lucky that then a few companies like. The Body Shop, for example, then um, asked to work with me, and uh, I got to look at kind of fair trade practices, and and then I started founding businesses. I founded a couple of businesses um, that tried to do business in a in a more positive way. Any more? Yes, there's a guy at the back there with glasses on his head. Hello. Um, it feels like in the fashion industry, you have a choice between either something really cheap, like a Primark basic t-shirt or something and then a quite expensive sustainable version t-shirt of like 30 pounds um, they're very very different price points and being sustainable is a big luxury I think um, how do we try and close those two price points and also are brands just 
upping their prices to try and capitalize on the sustainable thing. Do, does sustainable clothing need to be that expensive as well? So there's a lot there. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, the simplest answer is buy secondhand because that's usually cheaper and, um, and is about the most sustainable thing you can do. Um, but when it comes to new products, it's true there has been this kind of weird kind of gap in the market where a lot of sustainable fashion has been very expensive. Um, I have a kind of two responses to that. I think that you do have some of the really big companies now starting to be more ethical and then, and I'm talking like high street companies, and then you're getting cheaper prices because they're doing it at a huge scale where they can, they can make it cheaper. Um, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of sustainable fashion has been driven by very small brands um, who I don't think, because I've run a couple of them, are trying to make it expensive as a point. It's just the reality of like what things cost when you're paying people well, when you're using good material, when you're making sure that the dyes are all eco-friendly, etc. It genuinely does cost more. Um, and I think that's a shock to people because we're, we've been kind of conditioned to think it's normal to pay two pounds for a t-shirt. Um, and I would argue that it's not normal and there's huge other costs in super, super cheap clothes. Um, and personally, I think that for me, it's more about um, changing our relationship to the material world and, um, in, and seeing, like buying things you really love and that you're gonna look after and seeing, seeing value in a different way. Like if you're gonna spend 10 times more on, on, a, on an item of clothes, but it's gonna last you 20 times longer because you're gonna love it and look after it, then it's better value than you know buying you know, 10 versions of that, if that makes sense. I think we've got time for one last question, which is over there. I don't know, where, are there, here comes the mic, here comes the mic. I think it was William Morris who said you should only have things in your house if they're useful or beautiful. Yes, yeah, I like that one, yeah. Hi there, uh, you mentioned B Corp companies, and um, I work for a B Corp, and I'm a big believer in them, and they're companies who measure the, their performance through and their social and environmental performance as well as their financial performance. Have you got any thoughts about how we can raise the profile of B Corp? Because it's not something that many people know about. Um, so Impossible, uh, my company is a B Corp as well. And the first company, I, the so I'm going to answer in a roundabout way, the first social business I founded in 2009, there wasn't really a legal structure for us to put it under and we just tried to do things in a good way. Um, and then I discovered Muhammad Yunus and his social business movement. And then when B Corp came to the UK, which was only a few years ago, we, we became a B Corp. And for me, that signals that actually things are going in a really positive direction. Um, it's not to say we can't do more to like spread the message. Everyone, like learn about B Corp, <laughs> benefit corporations. But for me, watching that transition over the last 10, 15 years, it's like, whoa, there is a huge movement where we're actually seeing new legal structures emerge to rethink capitalism and and say that you know companies and shareholders um, sorry companies and CEOs are not just responsible to shareholders they're also responsible to the community to the environment to the employees etc. Um, so that that gives me a lot of uh, reasons for hope. Okay, so uh, as I said, this is the last of the RSA's events here today. I, and I, how do I distill all of that into one thing? So I will distill it into one thing, and it comes out of something you said, Lily. That it 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 reminded me of, which is. We've had a lot of people up here who, who made a decision at a certain point in their lives that they could make a difference, and you decided it in Botswana. We had um, Gina uh, up here earlier on who decided when someone took a photograph up at a, at a, at a festival that she was going to change the law, and she changed the law. Uh, we have Solitaire who decided when there was a nuclear dumping in her town when she was 11 years old. I think the thing I want to say to people is don't underestimate the fact that there is somewhere where that you have a locus somewhere. There is a point in your life, in your networks, in your work, at office, uh, whether you stand for the council, whatever, there is something 
in your life, you might not think there is, you might not think you're Lily Cole, you might not think that you've got those, but you do have a point. There is something, and be aware of that possibility, that moment that comes along, which can be a transformational moment for you and make a huge difference uh, to the world. So we've had inspiring people up here, but in the end, you are all inspiring people. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you uh, for being in this session. Please thank Lily Cole. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.